this is Claire Cook, and you are listening to the Natural Mama Podcast. On today's episode, I've invited a very special guest. She is one of my lifelong best friends, and she is a natural mama herself. She has two young boys, and we've invited her today to talk a little bit about the difference between giving birth in a hospital versus a birthing center. We also will talk about all kinds of things ranging from breastfeeding and what it's like to breastfeed a toddler and how it's viewed in society. We talk a lot about the hashtag normalized breastfeeding trend and how we feel as women breastfeeding in public. So without further ado, welcome to the show, best friend of mine, beautiful mama, beautiful woman, Quinn Hoffman. Aw, Claire, thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. I'm excited. Yeah, we have these conversations all the time, so this will just be like another one of those. Exactly. Exactly. So of course, you know, the Natural Mama podcast is all about everything natural, Um, It started whenever I was in Santiago, Chile, and I had to basically do a bunch of research on my own because Chile is not a country conducive to natural births. It actually has one of the highest rates of cesarean sections in the world. Um, Like a lot of South American countries, it's just over-medicalized and um, going natural or having an unmedicated birth or even a vaginal birth is kind of rare. So I went in to do a bunch of research on my own and that's whenever I decided to go natural. And a lot of my guidance was from you, Quinn, um, because you had already had your baby and um, we had talked a lot about why we wanted to go natural. So I just want to hear your perspective. Why was having a natural birth something that was very important to you? Gosh, it's like such an interesting question for me now because I kind of have to go back to like three years ago before I got pregnant and became a mom and all that stuff because, you know, my perspective has obviously changed so much. But what I think about is it all started for me, honestly, with the fear of getting an epidural. Mm. And like from there, I just ended up taking such a deep dive into my own research, similar to how you had to do your own research, even here in the States, like there's not so much information that's given to us. If we want to go the natural route, we kind of have to dig for it ourselves. Mm -hmm. So for me, it started with the fear of getting an epidural, which I know that's actually very common for a lot of women. And then everything that I discovered just solidified my, like that instinct that I had to go natural. Everything that I discovered was kind of backing that up for me. Yeah. A lot of people are afraid of the epidural, but it's so interesting because really I hear of most women being afraid of the pain of childbirth. Yeah. So it's funny that you just, your instincts were telling you like the pain of childbirth is one thing, but the epidural was something that really freaked you out. And you were just definitely primed for a natural birth. Like it was just, yeah, I still had fear of that pain as well, but that was secondary to my fear of an epidural because of things that could go wrong with an epidural, obviously the fear of the injection itself and all of that, but there's so much fear surrounding it all, but Mm -hmm. that's kind of where my jumping off point came from is it started with the epidural and then it snowballed into, because, you know, I discovered that that can lead to the cascade of intervention, which I know you've talked a lot Mm -hmm. about, and that was just a huge eye opener. 
in learning about all that. And I just wanted to avoid as much of that as possible and just give birth the way that my body was designed. And yeah. So whenever you were deep diving into the epidural research, what is something that you found that definitely solidified your decision to not go that route with the epidural and other interventions? So just learning about the cascade of interventions and how starting with one medical thing could lead to another and another and another really scared me. I think the thing that jumps out the most within that list is a catheter. For some reason, I did not like the idea of that. You know, you can read horror stories about it, but even the quote unquote pleasant experiences with it did not sound right for me. Um, I've just read a lot about that. It can make your healing process a little bit longer and actually a little bit more painful specifically with like stinging. I've just heard that a lot. And um, like, as if you don't have enough pain and trauma going on down there anyway, got the catheter in there. Yeah, exactly. God, so natural and completely unnecessary if it can be avoided. So, so I just want to briefly kind of overview the cascade of intervention, which I definitely went over in detail in um, episode one of the natural mama podcast. But basically the cascade of intervention is whenever you have one seemingly harmless medical treatment or intervention, for example, just setting up a routine IV, if you're in the hospital and the doctor's like, oh, just in case we have any issues, we're going to like hook you up to this IV and give you fluids. And then that is just the very beginning of interventions that you don't even realize can snowball into this massive issue, which eventually may lead to a C-section. So you have this intervention of the IV, which means you can't eat or drink, which means you get really exhausted, which means you may um, not have energy to push. So you'll possibly get induced with Pitocin and the Pitocin strengthens the intensity of the contractions, which causes more pain. So then they offer you a silver platter of pain medications or an epidural when you take that, it slows down your, um, your contractions and your progress, and then you end up getting further induced. And it's just this balancing act of medications and treatment that eventually can cause fetal distress where your baby has, um, a rapid heart rate or too low of a heart rate. And I mean, you're injecting all these things in your body and it obviously crosses the placenta as it's shown. And it basically takes the power out of your hands as the mother and you're giving everything into the hands of the doctors. So that's something you wanted to avoid. And that's something I definitely wanted to avoid. And I think a lot of women aren't aware of the cascade of intervention. So education is key. An educated woman is an empowered woman. And what we're all about is educating women to make informed decisions to basically have full control of their birth experience. I love that. Yes. And this whole time, as you're describing that, I cannot help but jump back and forth between the two experiences that I've had. My first birth, as you know, was a hospital birth. And then my second birth, I opted to go the birthing center route. And just as you're talking, like I was saying, like, the comparison between the two is so stark and just could not be more of a 180 from, from the other. My oldest is Sebastian. He is almost two and a half. 
He is two years and four months. <laughs> and my youngest is four months. And it's really easy to keep track of them because in their ages because they are literally two years almost to the day apart. So Sebastian was born November 9th, 2018. And Stefan was born November 7th, 2020. Mm-hmm. So, and fun fact, Stefan was actually born on his due date. Which Ooh. Is- and your first one was what, 10 days late or something? Yeah. Nearly two weeks late, 11 days late. So. Okay. So Sebastian, your first baby, you went through your pregnancy, very conscious and very excited. Mm -hmm. I know you were doing a lot of positive affirmations daily and you had done a lot of research and you were totally prepared for a natural birth. So what was that like for you going into the first birthing experience, planning an all natural birth? The reason I chose to birth at a hospital for my first birth, even knowing that I wanted to go, I say, quote unquote, natural, or just as close to natural as possible while being in a hospital setting was because I wasn't sure, you know, how it was going to go. I've never done this before. I didn't know. You just hear so much about medical emergencies happening and what if, Mm -hmm. and this and that. So that's definitely in my head to make the informed decision and choice to birth at a hospital versus a birthing center for my first time Mm -hmm. around. So that was decided. And I found a really great um, OB-GYN who I was working with, who was not used to doing the more natural way of things, but was willing to work with me. And I felt comfortable with him and I felt heard and seen and all those Mm -hmm. things. So I felt really good about it all. And it just (laughs) still, even after all of that in the end was as far away from my quote unquote, perfect vision. Okay. So first being that my doctor, you know, my OB-GYN who I'd worked with for all these months throughout my pregnancy did not deliver my child. So I'm not sure how all of that works. I don't know if it was my insurance. I don't know if it was the hospital or what the variables could be there, but he was not on call that weekend and therefore did not deliver me. I, Sebastian was delivered by a complete stranger, someone I'd never seen oh, before, God. didn't know me or my wishes or, you know, of course I wrote down my birth plan or as I like to call my birth preferences, mm-hmm. I had it all typed out on my sheet and everything, but they come in and they're, you know, seeing all that for the first time, we don't have that relationship together. So, you know, how can they be in tune with what you want? when it's all happening so fast in the moment. Wow. Okay. So you had a doctor that you had never met before. And unfortunately I hear this all the time from women, particularly in the United States. I um, did not have that experience with my hospital birth in Chile because the, the system is organized a little bit differently. You have your doctor and that's it. They don't really do a rotating call situation. So if your doctor can't get there, then you'll have your whole team of midwives who are totally skilled and can deliver and do everything that a doctor can do, except for perform surgery. So I didn't have the experience with my, um, birth, even though my doctor didn't make it (laughs) in time, but, um, your baby arriving healthy and safely is all that matters. And that did happen. Thank God you had a wonderful birth. And then Your second, Stefan, who was born two years later, you had a little bit of a different experience and you went a different route. So tell me what you chose to do differently with his birth. Yes. So I went the birthing center route with Stefan, which is what I wanted to do the first time around. 
and it was incredible. <laughs> That's a great thing. <laughs> That's awesome. Of course, there was a lot of pain. It was very painful, but I've already romanticized it all in my head. And I just think of how beautiful it was and everything else was pain is so temporary mm -hmm. in the moment when you're going through it. It's terrible. I will not say like, I won't sit here and say that it's easy or, you know, pain-free, which are obvious things, but my labors are very long <laughs> with, with fashion. I labored for 39 hours. I basically labored a work week. You did. Oh my God. Can you get paid for that? <laughs> right. Okay. So, and then my labor with Stefan was 47 and a half hours. Mm -hmm. This is where I kind of start to jump back and forth and comparing the two. Because when I was in the hospital with Sebastian going on, you know, hour 30, I'm hearing things from the nurses who are coming in and out. Like you should have had this baby by now. Your labor is stalling. And hearing that doesn't help a laboring woman in the moment. No, it does the complete opposite. It puts you in a state of panic. It releases adrenaline, which makes you freak out. And it actually stalls labor further. So, right, right. you know, hindsight is 2020 and looking back since Sebastian, what my first was two weeks late, I was mm -hmm. making appointments every week at that point with my OBGYN and he, on my last appointment did a membrane sweep and okay. Can we pause right there? Yeah. What do you mean? He did a membrane sweep. Was he, okay. This is like a big deal right now in terms of obstetric violence and maternal violence and violation. Did you tell him you wanted that? Or was he like already checking your cervix and just was like, whoop, let me just do this. So yes, yes. And no, I knew what it was because my cousin gave birth six weeks prior to me and she and I were close throughout this pregnancy and texting back and forth. She lives in a different state. So, and she had told me about a membrane sweep since I was so late and I was, you know, ready to have this baby. Mm -hmm. I was talking to her and um, trying to get tips on how to get the baby to come, which is also kind of silly in hindsight because the baby will come when he's ready to come. But she told me about it. So I had known what it was and I actually wanted to get it done. Okay. But with that said, my doctor was checking me and basically just told me that he was going to go ahead and give me one. And I was thinking in my head, okay, great. Yeah. I was just about to ask, but had I not known what that was? No, mm -hmm. he, I, he did not get my permission to do that. And he just went ahead and did it. I feel like that is a medical procedure that should be in writing. I agree to do this mm -hmm. or I don't agree to do this. I feel like that's extremely invasive, whatever way you want to look at it. Like, even if you want it or don't want it, I really feel like that should be in writing. I agree. Clear consent should be given to do something like that because that mm -hmm. was the first of my medical interventions, mm -hmm. the cascade of interventions that I was really going out of my way to try to avoid occurred mm -hmm. before I even went into labor. That's why it's so sneaky and insidious. It just like creeps up and it's just part of the way they do things. The doctors know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. That's what they do all day, every day. They know how to handle it. They know how to kickstart things to where it's in their control on their schedule. They know what to expect. They know after the membrane sweep, I have this amount of time, you know, this amount of hours mm -hmm. to where this will start happening. Right. 
that you don't know that. I mean, women aren't taught this. Is the doctor teaching? Did he tell you any of this? I mean, I don't know. Whatever. Right. No, <laughs> I, I know. Right. I agree. It's just the biggest difference between delivering in a hospital and delivering in a birth center, since I've had both experiences, is going the hospital route feels very medically managed. I mean, every mm -hmm. from all of your appointments throughout pregnancy to obviously throughout your delivery, labor and delivery experience. But, you know, for example, at the birth center, I obviously had my, uh, you know, my pregnancy appointments, but I was never weighed one time. Um, they had a scale there. They gave you the option, but I was never, it was never, you know, like something that you just do whenever you show up, you know, you show up at the hospital appointments, you step on the scale, you get ready for your cervical exam. You, you, go through all of these motions that are just medical procedures. And mm -hmm. at the birth center, they're more checking in with you emotionally. If you have physical concerns, of course, they're going to address them and they're trained to handle it, but it felt much more relaxed as though they were helping, they were aiding a mother in her pregnancy journey rather than medically managing a condition. Right, a condition. In Chile with my doctor who I got very lucky and I found um, the like one and only obstetrician who not just does natural birth, but is pro natural birth, like does not even want to talk about inductions, does not even want to talk about pain medication. Like she's very diehard go natural. Um, she never did any cervical exams. Like I didn't even know that was a part of pregnancy treatment because we never even talked about it. It just wasn't done. And it just was not even part of the process. Like I never once knew if I was dilated or even whenever I was giving birth, like I just was never checked, but she did weigh me like, yeah. like 20 weeks, like halfway. And apparently I had gained a little bit too much too quickly, but really what had happened was I ate a massive Thai, like pad Thai dinner the night before and I didn't go to the bathroom yet. So I had all that, all that sodium and swelling and water retention and hadn't gone to the bathroom yet. And so I was like two or three pounds heavier than I should have been. <laughs> and I got like upset actually, cause my doctor like made me kind of, she didn't make me feel bad. I guess I like took it upon myself and made myself feel bad, but she like kind of scared me saying that I had gained too much weight. And I was like really upset about it. I think I only gained 19 pounds the whole pregnancy. So I don't know. I remember this. You had only gained 15 up until that point. And I remember yeah. telling you like, no, that's not too much. I think I've gained 20 by that point, Yeah, but you know, everyone's different. And I don't think, you know, give or take four or five pounds at any certain point is should be labeled as way too much or not enough. It's just, it, it is, if you feel good, you know. Exactly. And I think that's something, that's just one little thing that you don't really think about, mm -hmm. but it induces anxiety and stress, which can cause a lot of other issues throughout your pregnancy and set you up for a stressful birth. Right. If you already feel like you're not doing things right, or you're putting your child in danger and like, you're so right. Every woman is different. Every like rate of gaining weight is so variable. I mean, hello, I think I dropped like three pounds after I went to the bathroom. So like, it's so, it's not a true indicator 
of your health. And the fact that at the birthing center, they did not weigh you. It just automatically removed that layer of anxiety that really doesn't need to be there. Because whether you know it's there or not, it's there subconsciously. And like you said a second ago, it feeds into the experience in either a positive or negative way, even if it's a slight inkling or something happening subconsciously, it's just, it's still there and you don't need any more stress layered on to what you're already going through and growing a human inside of your body. It's, it's a crazy thing in and of itself. So to add something on top of that, that makes you second guess the way you're going about it can just hinder your whole experience and it can build, you know, they can layer on top of each other and and start to snowball. Absolutely. That's exactly what happens. And I mean, you can even call that the beginning of the cascade of intervention. I mean, I don't know. It could start that early. Exactly. So the overall tone of a birth center for me felt more reassuring and comforting. Comforting is a good word because I felt emotionally supported. Whereas in the hospital, I just go back to thinking of how it was okay, check this off the list, this, this, it was very procedural. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was my second time around. So I did feel more confident in that regard as well. So, and so you had midwives taking care of you at the birthing center and no doctor, or did you have a doctor present or what was that? Yes. I actually worked with two midwives because the way that my specific birthing center worked was they do have midwives on call for like night shifts and weekends. They kind of alternate that but you build the relationships throughout your pregnancy with both of the midwives. So regardless of who's on call, whenever you happen to go into labor, you're there with someone who knows you, who knows your wishes, who, you know, you've built this rapport with. And that was also a huge thing for me because delivering my first with a complete stranger, that was a big thing on my list that I know that I needed for myself was to have a relationship with my person who was going to be delivering me. So absolutely. And to have them there afterwards is so important too, because I mean, you go through pregnancy and then you go through childbirth. And then I remember one of the strangest parts of having Mateo and finally having him was that he was like, just laid on my chest. And I was like, okay, what do I do now? And they were like, okay, breastfeed him. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, is it just okay. simple? Just do it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> What I had requested to have like two hours of uninterrupted time with just my husband, myself and my baby once he was born. But I think I maybe needed a little bit of help from my midwife to figure out how to get this latch situation going on because Mm. I could not figure out how to get Mateo to latch on and to start breastfeeding. And I had an amazing birth, first of all, but I expected that similar vibe for breastfeeding and I did not get that. I I just did not know what the hell to do. And I just had this baby here who I guess was trying to nurse. I don't, it was just complicated. Right. And it turns out he had a tongue tie too, right? Which. Yeah. Well, we didn't know that. We didn't know he had a tongue tie throughout my stay in the hospital. No one checked his tongue tie or checked to see if he had one or not. Mm. And I did have nurses coming in and out to help me latch, but they would literally just like rip my boob, like pull it off and away from my body and like squeeze it like a freaking like hamburger in between their hands and like shove it into my baby's mouth. It just seemed really aggressive. 
whatever. I mean, it kind of worked because he did laugh, but it was just really, it was just really invasive and it felt really unnatural and weird, Yeah, but I didn't know any better. And it wasn't until maybe like four days later, I had gotten home from the hospital and I was just really struggling. I could not get him to latch. I didn't know what was going on. And I had heard actually my team of midwives had recommended They recommended this lactation midwife and she came over and I was like, oh my God, anything to help me. I don't know what to do. And the first thing she did was check his mouth and she's like, oh, he has a tongue tie. And I'm like, what? What's that? And she, it was just the first thing she did. And she's like, yeah, that can definitely affect the latch. It's like, oh, well, I mean, no one told me that. And I didn't even know what a tongue tie was. And the way she handled him, my baby was like four days old at this time. Mm -hmm. She was so, I I swear she was an angel. She was so calm. She just like moved him so gracefully. And she, the moment she walked into the room, I felt immediately at ease and I felt so calm in her presence and I felt truly supported. And I felt like she was listening to me. She was caring for me. She was caring for Mateo. I'll never forget. I think Mateo had a dirty diaper while she was there. And so we had to change him and she saw how I was changing him. And I was like, I've never changed a newborn before. So I don't know what I'm doing, but I was doing what I saw the nurses at the hospital do, Uh which looking back hindsight, it was horrible. They were so aggressive and fast and ripping his clothes off. And I felt like I was like in a speed race, like trying to get him dressed or else he would start screaming or whatever. And the lactation midwife is like, Claire your baby's fine. Like, look at him. He's not crying. He's relaxed. She's like, your baby is so patient. Watch him. He is a patient baby. And I was like, oh. And so I did watch him and I started like really tuning into him and he was so patient. And I realized that I was being so impatient. I was being impatient with him. I was being impatient with myself. I was being impatient with the breastfeeding journey. I was like frustrated and trying to force things because I had really just watched the nurses like change him and rip his diaper off and throw things around and like shove my boob in his mouth. And that was my only guidance at this point. So the midwife really, really helped me slow down and tune into my baby. And I'll never forget this piece of advice because I feel like it was just so true. She was like, you just dress your baby like a little 94 year old man. (laughs) That's all he is. You just slowly lift his arm up. You don't want to hurt him. And he's a little fragile. There it goes over his head. And she was putting on this onesie so delicately. And I was like, wait, like I had a total click. I was like, that is how you should treat your baby. Like no shit. So just such a difference with midwifery. I really would love to see more midwives for pregnancy, childbirth, and for breastfeeding. Even I'm thinking with Sebastian, who I had my hospital birth with, when they weighed him, you know, they put him on a a flat, like, you know, like a scale bed, Mm kind of just like a hard surface. Maybe there was a little bit of padding, but whatever. It's still this, this flat surface that they lay him on to be weighed. And at the birth center, my midwife scooped up my baby in a little what did they call it? It's like a sling, like a sling mm-hmm. scale. And it's just so cozy. And, you know, it's just every little detail such as those were just so different from the birth center to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Like your newborn is, you know, they're, 
they're just so delicate and innocent and they're born into this world where they can come out seeing harsh, bright lights. And just, you know, I'm talking of course about like maybe in a hospital setting where there's two or three nurses, the doctor delivering you. And in my birth center, it was in a queen size bed. It was me and my husband and my midwife. And then there was a birthing assistant there as well. And there was water running. There was candles lit. There's dim lighting. It was just, and then my midwife, she gave me a a cup of tea afterwards. And it was like the best cup of tea I've ever had. And it was, I love that. That's makes such a difference. It really does. So I had a little bit of issues starting my breastfeeding journey, but I know you are like a power producer. (laughs) So how have your breastfeeding journeys been? And you're still you're still breastfeeding both of your boys, right? So what? So it's been one constant journey. It, it hasn't. They the two have overlapped, so it's just one long journey. I've been breastfeeding now for going on two and a half years. Mm-hmm. So I luckily did not have any issues with Sebastian, my first, with um, like he didn't have a tongue tie or anything. And of course, those first few days and times trying to breastfeed were stressful and it doesn't come naturally. So with those few days aside, um, you know, it's like anything else you get used to it and there's definitely a learning curve. And Mm -hmm. I did have a great lactation consultant in the hospital and she was amazing. Um, but it's funny. She was a little bit manhandly with the taking my boob and putting it into his mouth and kind of cradling his neck and just latching him on to the, to my breast. And I did, I do remember being like, Oh wow. Okay. But it did work. Like you said. <laughs> right. Um, but the biggest takeaway that I remember from her that I love, and I can hear her voice being gentle in this way too, whenever she told me, she says to touch your nipple to first his nose, then his top lip, and then put his mouth over your breast. And so I just, I always hear her say nose, top lip and latch. And I did that for the first few days. And that was how I learned to breastfeed with him. And I, I remember I repeated that process in my mind with Stefan too. It was much easier getting Stefan to get the hang of breastfeeding, um, even though it was still a learning curve there for him because he had never done it. But I was much more confident. I've been breastfeeding for, you know, two years at this point. And it's something I recommend if you know that you're going to have your children pretty close together. I recommend And if it's something that you want, you know, you want to do to keep that train going, to keep nursing, because you don't have to deal with like sore, cracked nipples. Like I didn't have any of that the second time around with Stefan. We are trying for our second. Um, And I'm still breastfeeding Mateo. So I'm, I was about ready to stop. Just like be done, throw in the towel. I'm done breastfeeding because Mateo yesterday oh God. clamped down <laughs> his full set of teeth, Gosh. lock jaw yeah. on my nipple for like probably like seven full seconds, like laughing cr- like a crazy demon with my nipple in his mouth. And I was like scream, like crying and I couldn't get it off. I had to pry his jaw open. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's because he's teething. That's what I'll, I'll give it that excuse, but no. So, so I ended up just, you know, getting over it as we do. We're moms. <laughs> so. That definitely happened to me a few times. I will say that. I mean, a few, 
a few times, handful of times. And it's so painful and it's infuriating. Oh, it's infuriating. The worst. But it's terrible. Definitely recommend to power through for the reason that we just talked about, but also for, you know, the time that we're living in, mm-hmm. it, it was a personal choice for me to keep going because I feel as though there is that extra layer of protection for Sebastian. If I were to keep nursing him, you know, I'm talking about COVID. So, oh yeah, definitely a personal preference there, but that I feel comfortable with. And it kept me going because also nursing throughout pregnancy is difficult as your bump grows, as your nipples become sensitive, you know, you go in and out of those phases as your pregnancy progresses. And there are many infuriating times that may lie ahead, but yeah, it's worth it. I mean, that's one of the things keeping me going too. It's like, I'm very blessed to be able to stay at home with Mateo and breastfeed him while he's home. And I'm very, very lucky that I have a solid supply still a year and a half out. And um, I've never had issues with that. And I enjoy like the breastfeeding relationship that we have. I enjoy, but also, you know, there's times where I'm like, oh, I just like want some freedom. I don't want to be connected, like have my body connected to this infant or baby like forever. (laughs) But then I know that it is the best protection for our children. And a lot of people say like, oh, you know, you should stop breastfeeding at one year because the benefits aren't really that strong anymore and blah, blah, blah. But in terms of COVID, which we're all dealing with right now, this pandemic and everyone's living in fear and wants to protect their children, of course, if you can continue to breastfeed, then you should, because that is in episode three of my podcast, you can refer back to it. I talk about how breast milk can protect against coronavirus, because if you're, if the mother is exposed to COVID, she can produce the antibodies and the antibodies are passed to the baby through the breast milk, protecting the baby from the virus. And that is not just coronavirus. I mean, that's how breast milk works. That goes with pretty much all viruses. So the influenza flu and other like the common colds and other viruses or illnesses or bacterias and things. The breast milk is so, it's called liquid gold for a reason. It is so incredible. We talk about this all the time is like, oh my God, the amazing benefits of breast milk that it's antimicrobial, anti-inflammatory for teething and things like what Mateo is going through right now, anti-inflammatory, antibacterial, antiviral, I mean, it fights everything, Uh um, under the sun and there is no known, um, composition of formula that offers better nutrients or better quality nutrients or better protection than breast milk. There, there is nothing you can just put anything in my face. And I will just tell you, there is nothing that you show me that is better than breast milk. There's just nothing. I mean, it's perfect food right? Like designed for your baby from your, and it's just like with anything, like a mother cow produces her milk for her baby. It's the perfect food to turn that baby calf into a 400 pound bovine animal as rapidly as possible. It's the perfect food for your baby. And it's just, it's true. But you and I are so aligned in that way. Like we we'll just text each other randomly and be like, oh my gosh, just tried breast milk for this. And it worked. Like, I remember when Sebastian had an eye 
little eye infection. He was like three weeks old and I just squirted a little breast milk in there. And it was like the next day, perfectly gone. There was no more pus coming out. It was just healed. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Mateo has his um, spring pictures at at daycare today and he's all dressed up. And yesterday, of course, he was running around in the backyard and I had kept him so safe all week, but last <laughs> of night, well, really yesterday evening, he, he slips and lays out and scrapes his face, his nose and his upper lip and his cheek are all scraped up. So <laughs> of course for picture day, but I put breast milk on it right after that happened. And last night before he went to bed and this morning, stop. Cause you sent me the pictures of him this morning. I didn't notice anything on his face. Right. So literally overnight it's significantly better. It's not gone completely, but I mean, just in a matter of like 10 hours, Wow! everyone knows that breast milk is the best thing for your baby. It's designed for your baby. It heals your baby. It protects your baby. It nourishes your baby. And the world health organization recommends that you provide breast milk to your baby until two years of age. But I'm here with my 18 month old and you have a Mm two-year-old and I know in my experience, I have people looking at me like I'm crazy having a walking, talking toddler come up to my boob in public. Right. How has your experience been um, in terms of like community support or like friends or even family members watching you go through this breastfeeding journey with a two-year-old and in my case, an 18 month old? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I've heard something that I think is so right where it's like, while you're pregnant, people are asking you if you're planning on breastfeeding and how long you're planning on breastfeeding. And then after you have the child at a certain point, you know, maybe they hit six months, maybe a year, you start getting asked when you're going to stop breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. It's a weird, like you think about it. Why is that? I haven't personally noticed any stares probably because I don't give a what, <laughs> but, um, I'm sure they're out there. I've, I've heard a lot too, when people are saying that, whenever they can ask for it is when they're too old to have it. I'm like, how does that make sense? They just, they're Mm -hmm. always, they're always communicating with you. A crying baby, a crying newborn is telling you that he's hungry, but your two year old is maybe telling you with words because he, you know, they're always communicating that with you. What's changed is just in the way that they're now able to communicate. That's such a good point. I don't know what it is about people wanting you to stop breastfeeding. I don't, I just don't get it. First of all, why do they even have an opinion and why would you want to stop or why would you want to not encourage giving your baby something that's so incredible for them? I don't understand. Like, what's the deal? Yeah. And I know you've seen this hashtag normalized breastfeeding movement happening. It's been boiling under the surface and now it's becoming bigger and bigger. And It's because it doesn't make sense. We need to breastfeed our children. We need to breastfeed our children until they're two years old. Right. And we need to normalize this. We need to stop being criticized. We need to stop criticizing other women. Mm -hmm. We need to stop having strong opinions that have nothing to do with our lives. And it has to do with other people's children. And I'm very passionate about women making their own informed decisions and being supported by their friends and family and others Uh um, in the community. And in terms of breastfeeding, it's so unusual to see it as such a radical idea, as such a taboo in our society. And our society is just so conservative. 
I don't mean politically. I mean, sheltered maybe would be a better word. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., I see a lot of people trying to cover up if they're breastfeeding, which is fine. If you're, if you are uncomfortable, that's fine. But if you are making other people uncomfortable, that's the issue. Right. Like you should not make your decisions based on how you're making other people feel. And it reminds me, oh my God, last night I read this article that was released a few years ago about this woman in Georgia who was at church on a Sunday morning with her family. And she began breastfeeding her newborn baby at church. Mm -hmm. And whenever people noticed that she was asked by the church leaders, if she could step aside and go into the bathroom. And she felt that was completely unsanitary and also unnecessary. Right. And (laughs) after that, the church leaders implied that they could have her arrested for lewd behavior for exposing herself in public. Wow. And even like the head pastor, like the priest or whatever, the pastor of the church, he went as far as comparing her to a stripper. He called her a stripper or he compared her to a stripper, just flaunting her breasts around. Okay. I'm sorry. What is wrong with this picture? Okay. The state of Georgia actually has a law that says women are allowed to breastfeed anywhere that they want to. They're free to breastfeed in public, wherever they want. But this woman was still legitimately at risk of being arrested for public indecency. That's insane. Yeah. And in this case, I feel like it would be like a my word against yours. You would have this like established community leader, the priest, Mm -hmm. you know, he has his word where he says she was a stripper exposing herself. And this poor woman of a freaking newborn baby is trying to nourish her baby who's hungry and she, who's going to, who's going to win that case. Right. Well, that's interesting too, because it's just, she's trying to live her life. Like kudos to her for making it to church with a newborn. That's amazing. Just trying exactly. to live her life and continue her faith, you know, and that's terrible that she was shunned in that way. I think it really boils down to, it's just like perspective and what you don't see all the time. You have a very closed-minded perspective about and breastfeeding unfortunately is one of those things like you said it's very taboo in our society and I'm hoping that now with just having the starting with having the conversation and hopefully empowering women to to own their right to breastfeed their child in anywhere that they need to and at any time it comes up when your baby's hungry the more that that happens and the more people see it and the more people talk about it, the more it's out there, the less taboo it becomes because it becomes more common mm-hmm. because it is a very common thing, but it just happens behind closed doors because for a lot of reasons, but a big one is that women don't feel empowered to do, to do so, to do it out in the open and to, you know, just do what they need to do. Definitely. And I always will go back and say, Education is key. An educated woman is an empowered woman. And if you know the benefits of breastfeeding your baby and you believe in those and you stick to your, you know, you stick to it because you believe that is what's best for your baby, which it is. If you can, I'm not saying, look, there's so many people who 
cannot actually breastfeed or ha- you know pump instead. I'm I'm just referring to women who are able and want to breastfeed. Right. Um, Should feel empowered to do so. Definitely. So I think it's also definitely starts with women because we're the ones who can turn this thing around and change the narrative because we're the ones who make the choice to breastfeed or not, and to do it in public or not, or do it hidden or not. But also I really believe that we should be having these conversations with definitely our partners, our husbands, our family members, our, you know, um, cousins and our priests and our neighbors and our teachers and our doctors and our construction workers. I think everyone should know about this. I don't think, I think, yeah, the act is one thing, but the educating of the community is another thing. And I think it starts with that, but also we do have to acknowledge this deep rooted misogynistic belief in our society, which is that boobs are seen as sexual objects. Right. And as we know, sex sells and you see boobs on, you know, perfume ads or toothpaste ad or literally anything. <laughs> but, yeah. And that has distorted people's view on boobs, first of all, but also women. And of course there's the big me too movement right now, which is finally highlighting that women are not sexual objects. We cannot be put as just passively, you know, receiving whatever a man or perpetrator wants to do. Mm -hmm. So there I'm seeing things changing slowly, but surely in a more positive direction, but it all boils down to viewing women and viewing breasts as sexual objects is really an act of misogynistic power. In my opinion, I feel like it's like a way to control women and to keep them contained. And I also think that's tied to like shaming breastfeeding women in public, like making them feel guilty for it or making them feel bad, making them feel like, like in a sexualized, you know, picture. We don't want you to be. Yeah. Like, why do you think so many women feel uncomfortable? Do you think it's because they physically are uncomfortable? Yeah, maybe. Or do you think it's uncomfortable because they know that the men around them are going to be looking at them as sexual objects when they're trying to nourish their child? One of those things that has to be almost compartmentalized because a woman can 100% feel sexy with her breasts. And, you know, if you're in that mindset, maybe you're not a mother yet. Maybe you're past the breastfeeding phase, but when you're a mother who's breastfeeding their baby, it's a different ball game altogether. And it's interesting to think about it in that way, because you have the power to be both, but Mm -hmm. I see what you're saying in terms of like a man sexualizing a woman breastfeeding. That's not, it's not the same thing. And it's not, he doesn't have the right to do that, but he also Mm -hmm. may not have the the perspective to see it otherwise, because it is so over-sexualized in our society. Boobs are over-sexualized in our society. So a man may only see it that way and can't understand the difference between the two or doesn't have the capacity to compartmentalize the difference between the two. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was like 19, I went to Miami for the first time and we went to Miami beach where you are allowed to be topless and that's totally fine and normal. It's more of a Latin culture down there anyway. So there's a little bit of a different mindset, 
but I'll never forget just seeing several women without their bikini tops on and these just infuriates me still (laughs) this like group of like tourists from like Oklahoma or God knows where. (laughs) sorry if you're from Oklahoma, but (laughs) whatever middle America and just with their phones out and taking pictures of these women who are mothers with their children, just because they didn't have a top on. Yeah. And that is weird to me. So that's like one thing I'll never forget. Cause I would always compare that to when I was living in Barcelona where no one wears a top right? and no one gives a shit. Yeah. Everyone's there. You're with your family. You're with your friends. You're with your coworkers. Europeans have a much more liberal mindset. Again, I'm not saying politically, I'm saying more open-minded as opposed to sheltered and protected or or whatever. And Europeans are just different, Yeah. but I will never forget just that stark comparison of seeing topless women in the U S versus seeing topless women in in Barcelona and seeing like how the community reacted. Well, it is whatever you're conditioned to, whenever you're exposed to the opposite, it is shocking. I mean, I agree with everything you're saying, but for example, my husband's from Brazil and he, you know, my first time to Brazil, we went to a beach there and I've, I have never been to a beach where being topless and being naked, we went to a nude beach (laughs) was like the norm. I didn't grow up around that. My, I, I'm from here. I'm from the States. I'm from Texas. I'm from the deep South. Like I, my mind, my eyes were opened up or in a way where I was surprised. I mean, it was like something I'd never seen before, but it was cool. It wasn't like, I wasn't judging what I was seeing. I was just taking it in, but I will say I was shocked. Mm-hmm. It's because I can see that. where I grew up and what I'm not used to. And I think circling back to the breastfeeding conversation it's if you're not used to seeing that and you see it in public for the first time if you could do a double take and be like whoa like you know think to yourself like what is that I've never seen that before she's out in public this is weird this is not right what's happening like you can spiral but if you're more open-minded to it and if you've heard a conversation about it before or if you've you know seen didn't I send you the um shout out to my favorite retail store ever reformation one of the models was modeling that one of the new wrap dresses and she was nursing her child in one of the photos and I was like this is amazing yes so I think the more you see it the more comfortable you can feel around it right which is with anything but yeah it's it is taboo in our society because you don't see it and I love that stores like reformation are having pictures like that on their website I love that we're having a conversation about it. And the more you talk about it, the more, you know, going back to feeling um, empowered through education, like with that comes the support you need as well. You mm-hmm. have support from, you know, even your husband, like, I'm so lucky that my, my husband is so supportive of me. And like, I've been on flights with him where I need to nurse Sebastian and he's like, just go for it. And, you know, I can't imagine having a partner who would feel uncomfortable with that and be like, Oh, cover up babe. Or, you know, whatever, like you need, you need to have support and it also just needs to be out there more. Definitely. And the support starts with a conversation and being on the same page and also, yeah, like just doing it. And so I have started to just 
really jump on the normalized breastfeeding bandwagon on Instagram. <laughs> so okay. if you don't follow my Instagram account, my handle is natural mama podcast. And my Instagram is super active. We have a big community of women who are all involved and it's a really fun place. You should definitely follow me there if you don't already, but I have recently been posting more and more photos of myself breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And there are definitely photos where you can see my nipple. I mean, not the full nipple, but my whole nipple isn't completely in my baby's mouth. I mean, whatever. So you can see that. And I remember when I, the first one I posted, I showed it to my husband first and I was like, you know, a little nervous. I'll admit, I was like, what do you think about this? Yeah, I know. And he was like, Claire, I think that's beautiful. Oh, I was like, you think it's too much? Like, you know, my dad follows me on Instagram he's like, Claire, it's beautiful. You need to post it. Stop questioning yourself. You're breastfeeding your baby. I love that. And so just having that support is so important. Right. It's empowering. Yeah, it's definitely empowering. So just obviously that goes back with, you know, I'm with my soulmate. I'm with the right man for me. So, I mean, as long as you're on the same page with your partner, but I will say now that I've been posting more breastfeeding photos, I've had a lot of support from women and a lot of women being like, wow, like that's a beautiful photo. I love the way you're just, it's just incredible and empowering. And thank you for doing that because it makes me feel better about what I did the other day or whatever. Uh On the other hand, (laughs) on one of my photos, I started getting like over 700 likes on this one photo of me breastfeeding my baby in a hammock with my husband sitting next to us on like a lounger. And I don't get like 700 likes on my photos. I get like 70 likes Uh on average. So I started looking at who I was like, whoa, like all these people are supporting me. But then I looked through and I had all these like, sorry, I'll say it like kind of creepy old men uh, liking my stuff and following my stuff. And I was like, oh, like I started feeling a little conflicted because I'm like, I really don't want to feed that distorted mindset of men, but I really believe it's necessary to have more exposure Yeah, because there are women who need to see it. And there are families who need to feel supported and like, they're not alone. And I don't know. So I'm kind of like iffy there. Yeah. No, I think that makes it worth it. Having, you know, one or two women, a handful of women to help them feel more empowered about something, like you said, that they did the other day, maybe they, you know, were nervous to breastfeed in public, but their baby was hungry and you're helping to break, break the mold too. You know, you're brave to post pictures like that and and to help normalize breastfeeding, like to be on the forefront of doing that, I think is really admirable. Thank you. I kind of see it as a comparison to this may be a far stretch, but (laughs) (laughs) legalization of marijuana in our country, hear me out. (laughs) Okay. So like years ago, well, not even that long ago, maybe like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, marijuana was totally illegal, except for in a few States it was legal. I know in California for like medical use, but the more publicity on marijuana and how Um, It helps people's medical conditions and blah, blah, blah. And the more states that have legalized marijuana for recreational use in the most, I don't know, in the past, what, six years or so, Uh, there's way less 
of a stigma on marijuana. Like even my own parents who were baby boomers who are, you know, in their sixties and you know, well, my dad was a straight edge. My mom maybe dabbled. She was a little bit of a hippie, but kind of the more conservative mindset of the baby boomers of our parents, they're like in general, very against it. I mean, they were raised with like the Ronald Reagan era of war on drugs and all that shit. So, but they, in their daily conversations are like, Oh, well, marijuana, you know, I think it's no big deal. And you can go get a pen down there or a CBD oil. And there's CBD places everywhere. You know, people are not it's not taboo anymore, or it's way less taboo than it was 10 years ago. Yes, that's true. So I feel like, here's my stretch of a comparison of just normalizing breastfeeding, kind of how we normalized or removed the stigma around marijuana. We can remove the stigma around breastfeeding and it it comes with exposure. Completely. That's the word that I was, I keep thinking about is the more you're exposed to something, the more normal it becomes. And that's just it. I mean, that's kind of common sense too. It's mm-hmm. with anything. And it, it really changes your perspective. The more you're exposed to something, the more you are almost forced to keep thinking about it. And it changes the way that you think and feel about something. I have kind of a stretch. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> and we don't have to get into it, but I just, I, I am vegan, as you know. Mm-hmm. But before I became vegan, I didn't really think twice about maybe drinking cow's milk or having cheese or anything like that. But it was presented to me in the way this way that like changed my perspective on it forever was, are you a baby cow? Then, and the answer is no, then why are you drinking milk? Like you don't need that. And it's kind of the same for breastfeeding. We said a little bit ago that it's the perfect food designed for your baby. And just as is giraffe's milk for a giraffe, you know, baby giraffe milk or rat's milk or anything. So (laughs) that was something that completely shifted my perspective. And now four years later, five years later, whatever it is sitting here as a vegan, it's like my perspective is completely that. And I would never dream of consuming those types of animal products. But four years ago, my perspective was so different and it was like the norm for me to consume those things. And it's just, you know, Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a really good comparison because that's something you can definitely see in our society as well. Like you go to the grocery store and you see oat milk, almond milk, hemp milk, cashew milk. I mean, all these options and you go on, you check out Netflix and you see game changers, cowspiracy, you see all these documentaries, not really shaming people, but educating people and changing the perspective through education. And so I think that's a great comparison. I think that's exactly how society does change. It's through education and exposure. And that's what we're here to do. I mean, another thing that you and I talk about is the pendulum just swings so far back and forth because everyone has different opinions on things. And that is totally fine. I think nowadays things are getting a little lost in that people are very quickly offended. Yeah. Like the pendulum is no longer swinging left and right. It's going in like a whack, like a Ferris wheel circle, like out of control. (laughs) It's like that ride at six flags, the one that like swings back and forth until it goes so hard. It actually flips upside down. (laughs) You (laughs) stick to the walls and you can't function. I think that's where our pendulum is right now. (laughs) I think it's just cool to be able to have the wherewithal to sit with someone and say, Oh, that's cool. You think about it that way. I think about it this way. And, you know, I guess you just agree to disagree and you can take from 
the other person what resonates with you mm-hmm. and then having the open-mindedness to do so to maybe disregard something that you once held on to whenever you're exposed to a new way of seeing it you can you have the power within yourself to make that choice and say oh I don't this isn't working with me anymore I don't necessarily agree with this anymore I've learned about this and you can change and grow and not just tolerate other people, but accept other people. It's Absolutely. just maybe slow down that pendulum a little bit. <laughs> yeah. That was not so aggressive. I just it's feel like I'm like vomit inducing. Yeah. No, I totally it's- agree. And I think that applies to everything, you know, obviously with normalizing breastfeeding, it's, it's one thing that we want to see evolve through in our society, but it really does boil down to like an internal evolution. And like you said, you choosing to be open enough to hear a different perspective or see a different perspective and you don't have to agree with it, but right. if you're open enough to listen or s- learn right. and then maybe take what you like right. and leave what you don't like mm-hmm. and then move forward and evolve. It's not about being right and wrong. Like who's right and who's wrong. There's all this like, oh, you're wrong. It's not about that. It's about understanding each other and understanding where the other person is coming from. You can apply that on a grand scale. You can apply that to your relationship with your significant other. Mm-hmm. Like in an argument, it's not, it's literally not about who's right and wrong. It's about seeing the other person's perspective and understanding them and having the desire to understand them and then holding space for them. And it's just all of that. It's not, I think just to turn the temperature down (laughs) on all planes and to just like really come to a place where another thing I like to think about is I heard once where the difference between accepting something and tolerating something you know, you hear those terms and you kind of understand it on a surface level, but breaking it down is like, for example, say your toddler is like tapping his pen on the wall and it's annoying you, but you're tolerating it. You're letting him do it, but it's really, it's like just making your blood boil. Mm -hmm. But if you were to accept that behavior within him, it wouldn't bother you. He's still doing it, but you're at peace with it. And that's like a, I mean, if he's tapping on the wall and causing damage, by all means, stop your child. (laughs) That's not really the point. It's just kind of to say that if you accept someone else's point of view, it doesn't bother you so much. It doesn't. And I think that seeing that play out along the breastfeeding conversation and having that out there will make it more accepted in society. Definitely. I love that analogy. And it just makes me think like, there's a lot of things that my son does that bothers me. You put it into perfect words of what I try to do, which is try to like, see it from his point of view, which is, you know, he's a baby, he's learning like your son tapping the pin on the wall. He's like playing with like the different sounds that he can make. He's exploring and creating what he may think is beautiful music and it makes him happy and it's creative and yeah, definitely shifting perspective is necessary. And just to hold on to those ideals and apply them to every situation and to choose joy throughout the day. It's a hard choice to make, but you have the power to choose it. Absolutely. Totally agree. So where can my followers find you? I'm on Instagram. I am Quinn.Hoffman and that's with two F's and two N's. So Q-U-I-N-N dot H-O-F-F-M-A-N-N. Yes, ma'am. That's me. And we can see your awesome mom life inspiration. 
Is that a hashtag, Mom Life Inspo? We're going to make it one. Okay, Mom Life Inspo. That's you, for sure. Love it. Well, I'm so happy you could join me today. This was so much fun. I know. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Yay. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Natural Mama Podcast. No need for FOMO. Be sure to hit subscribe so you can be the first to listen to each episode once it's fresh off the press. Follow me on Instagram at Natural Mama Podcast where you can stay updated and send me a DM with any questions, comments, or suggestions of topics you'd like to hear more about. Help me reach other women just like you by sharing, rating, or reviewing this podcast. Remember, we as women and mothers can truly make a difference in changing the narrative of pregnancy, childbirth, and motherhood.